please stand and turn with me to Mark chapter 14, where we'll read for our New Testament reading, verses 26 through 50. Our sermon text will be from Zechariah 13. But before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, please open our eyes tonight so that we can behold the wonderful things in your word. Um, We ask that you would please help me to be clear. Give your people listening ears, soft hearts, uh, tenderness uh, for all of us, Lord, to receive your word, to listen with faith, and to obey it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm, uh, sorry, whoops, Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 50. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, one I will kiss is the man, seize him, and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, 
and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Let's turn now to the source of that quotation. Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah 13. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Amen. You may be seated. One of the Sunday school songs that I liked uh, as a kid was Deep and Wide. Uh, I mainly liked it because of the game that you play where each time you sing it, you leave out one of the words and just say, mm, instead, mm, and wide, mm, and wide, until you finally get to the point where you sing all mms. So there's a mm, mm, flowing mm, and mm. Anyway. Pretty fun song. I'm not sure how much I learned from it at the time, though, because as I got early, as I got older, I started to kind of wonder 
But what does it mean? There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. A fountain of what? Uh, Well, you get the idea. Tonight, after the sermon, we're going to sing a hymn about a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, and if you're pretty familiar with that hymn, perhaps, you might not notice this at first. But I'd like you to imagine somebody completely unfamiliar with Christianity hearing that hymn for the first time. A fountain filled with blood. It's a little bit, a little bit gruesome, maybe. And I don't say this to jest. I say it in all seriousness. I used to go to this bluegrass jam that meets across the street at the Pine Hall Lutheran Church, and they would sing a lot of gospel songs there. But the, they were people from a lot of different backgrounds who would come. One time, somebody there commented that. Um, the, the old gospel song they would play, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? Um, she said that that song sounded really disturbing to her. She did not like it when people sang it. And again, it's one of those things that if you're used to Christian lingo, that language feels very familiar. It doesn't phase us. It doesn't shock us. Perhaps, perhaps the way that maybe it should a little bit more. <clears throat> it's language that comes straight from the Bible. It's in Revelation 7. Uh, describes the people coming out of the Great Tribulation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So help me to, to hear that woman's perspective and to think about those lyrics through the ears of somebody who's not used to these ways of speaking. It's striking, it's unexpected that washing those robes in a substance that is red would make them come out looking white. And yet that irony is the point, right? That's the whole point. Sinners plunged beneath that flood of the blood of Jesus lose all their guilty stains. And that's good news. Now the opening verse of this chapter, bring it back to Zechariah, describes for us a fountain that is going to cleanse God's covenant people from their sin and uncleanness. Well, there is a reason that the hymn writer, Cowper, made a, made a connection in that hymn between Zechariah's fountain in this passage and <clears throat> the blood of the Lamb in Revelation. The, uh, t- the tune title for There is a Fountain Filled with Blood is Cleansing Fountain, language taken straight here from um, Zechariah, this cleansing fountain that he describes. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to give you a little bit of an outline for tonight. So number one is going to be a cleansing fountain. That's verse one. And then number two, a new normal, verses two through six. And then number three will be a suffering shepherd, verses seven through nine. So a cleansing fountain, a new normal, and a suffering shepherd. Um, I'll Let's begin by just remembering where we left off last time. There's a close connection between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of 13. 
Zechariah has been describing um, what other prophets frequently call the day of the Lord. Remember how he keeps repeating that phrase over and over, on that day, on that day, that great future day of judgment on God's enemies and salvation for God's people, resulting in a new era or age of life with God for the people of God. Now, the first half of chapter 12 um, was all about a great climactic future victory of the Lord over all of the nations surrounding Israel and the great glory and security that that was going to provide for Judah and for Jerusalem, for the house of David. You remember that in verse 10 of the previous chapter, the tone changed very dramatically because after all that celebration and elation, there is this shift suddenly to weeping and grief and repentance. I will pour out, he says, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Chapter 12, verse 10. Remember how we puzzled over the question, how could God be pierced by his people? How is that even possible? And make long story short, not to re-preach last week, uh, it's foreshadowing, of course, the coming and the suffering of Jesus Christ. Christ who is the Lord and is also the servant of the Lord, sent by the Lord to be pierced by his people for his people. And uh, Jesus, you remember, was indeed pierced literally on the cross. Uh, Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. Another great hymn. Now, tonight, uh, verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 13, is continuing that thought, continuing that section. It's the next step after that grief-filled repentance. On that day, Zechariah says, uh, so remember, we're still thinking in terms of the day of the Lord, On that day, uh, that day of mourning, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The people are guilty of their sin against that figure that they pierced. They are humbling themselves in this unreserved repentance for rejecting the Lord and his leadership over them. And so now they are seeking to be cleansed. That's what they want. God has given them a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. He has stirred them up to pray for forgiveness and restoration. And now he is answering that prayer. He's providing exactly what he urged them to ask for. He's providing mercy. He's providing grace. He's providing cleansing from sin and uncleanness. And so where there had been separation and hostility between them and God, God is now making peace. He is He is cleansing these sinful people in a supernatural way. And that's important. It's like the water from the rock in the book of Exodus, in the wilderness. This fountain represents something like that, something these people never could have done on their own uh, for themselves. Only God can bring water out of bare rock, and only God can open up a fountain for cleansing a group of people as desperately unclean as this one. Only God. And so there are a couple things we want to see here, reflect on. First, you can see here the sovereign initiative of God in saving his people. 
can never get away from the fact that we sinners cannot cleanse ourselves. There is no ritual we can perform. There's no heroic act that we can accomplish. There's no sacrifice that we can offer. There's no penance that we can do to make up for our sin or to cleanse ourselves. It's like Lady Macbeth trying to get that spot of blood off her hand and she can't do it. It won't go away when she tries to clean it off. It's like the high priest Joshua way back in chapter 3 of this book. Um, Our garments are like his. They are hopelessly filthy. They are beyond our ability. We can't just put them in the washing machine and then it'll all be better. No, they are beyond help, beyond our ability to clean up. This is so important to understand. Being a Christian is not about us cleaning up our act. It's not. Our, being a Christian is about God cleansing us. God washing away the filth of our guilt and shame that we cannot remove. God removing that stain of sin. It's a sovereign cleansing from a supernatural fountain that only God can open. Also notice here that God offers this cleansing in response to a prayer that he prompted. You could ask, why do sinners feel conviction for their sin? Why do people start to grieve over their sin? Why do people ask God for mercy in the first place? This passage is showing us that this is God's work too. When God moves sinners to ask for mercy, it shows us furthermore that God will always give it. That's what verse 1 here is assuring us. Think about that other great hymn that says, Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. The only reason we come to God's feast is because God spreads it and God draws us in. Because left to ourselves, we would never come. It's like the Lord Jesus says in John 6. On the one hand, he says, No one can come to me at all unless the Father who sent me draws him. Together with that, he also says, on the other hand, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those whom he called, he also justified. Every time. And you never have one without the other. Okay. Now we're going to turn a corner here and start looking at verse 2. Verse 2, we could ask this question. But what is this going to look like practically? What practical difference is this going to make in the life of God's people for, for God to cleanse Israel from sin and uncleanness? And one practical, concrete outcome here is that, well, it's pretty straightforward. There aren't going to be any more idolatrous false prophets in Israel anymore. Uh, There were many times in Israel's history when false prophets were a huge problem for them. You can think about the prophets of Baal, for example, that Elijah interacts with. Um, So in this future that Zechariah is looking forward to, this day of the Lord, this day of judgment and salvation, he says that God is going to cut off the names of the idols from the land. He is going to remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. There were times in Israel's Israel's history where it would have been quite common, quite um, normal, quote-unquote, to run into these false prophets as part of daily life. But not anymore. 
This is about to change. Zechariah is picturing a time when false prophets have become no longer welcome in Israel. And that is good news. It is not okay now to be a false prophet and uh, promoting idolatry. These idolatrous deceivers are not going to be welcome anymore. They're not going to be given a hearing anymore in this newly cleansed Israel. Not even their own parents will shelter them from the penalty of God's law. Their own father and mother will carry it out. They are the ones who are going to pierce them through. Very dire kind of thing to say. Showing how thorough this cleansing has been. Nobody, nobody is going to be on their side anymore. Um, Verses 4 through 6 might seem a little opaque at first. What's going on in this little anecdote? What Zechariah is doing is is actually a little bit funny. It's a little bit comical um, in kind of a dark way. He's picturing the situation where it's now so dangerous to be known as a pagan prophet that nobody wants that reputation anymore. And so anybody who has that kind of skeleton in their closets is going to uh, extreme lengths to try to cover it up. In the past, um, having that kind of prophet persona, kind of desert wild man look, maybe, um, that sort of thing some guys would have cultivated. That's the sort of thing that maybe would have gotten a person a certain amount of respect or admiration. Maybe people would be curious, what does this guy have to say? He seems like a kind of holy man. Let's go listen to him. But that's not the way things are working anymore in this age. Now, these people are thinking, man, I'm not going to wear my old prophet costume anymore because nobody um, is interested in that. That could get me in big trouble. And then if anybody asks me, oh, hey, I think I recognize you. Weren't you one of those pagan prophets that we used to go and see? Well, he's already decided he's going to deny everything. No way. Me, prophet? No, you've got to be thinking about somebody else that wasn't me. Um, yeah, see, uh, as he goes on, again, it's kind of this comical scenario. It was like, yeah, uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm just a farmer. I've always been a farmer uh, ever since I was a kid. In fact, as a kid, this guy uh, sold me to this farmer, and I've been farming ever since. It, it's, he, he so desperately doesn't want to be known as a false prophet. He would rather be known as a slave. It's like, yeah, somebody sold me into slavery so I could be a farmer. I, so, of course, I'm not a, a prophet. I never, never have been, never will be. Yeah. So... Um, then, of course, somebody says, oh, but, but what, about those, what about those scars on your back? That kind of looks like the kinds of scars that we remember the false prophets having from the ways they would kind of beat themselves up as part of their worship. You can think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, how as they're dancing around their altar, they're, they're gashing themselves as part of their pagan worship to try to get their God's attention. So what are, these, what are these scars all about? It's got to be from you being... And he's like, no, 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 uh, that's... Um, I was hanging out at my friend's house and, you know, skateboards and stuff. I got these scars at my friend's house. Uh, again, it's, it's kind of comical, but the point is he is going to say anything rather than admit that he's a pagan prophet. And the point is that this reflects how total, how widespread this transformation cleansing of Judah's public community life has been. So at different times in Judah's history, there had been pretty good kings who had led pretty good reformations of Judah's worship. They'd purged the land of idols, for example. But somehow the people kept going back. And you have to wonder for all of those efforts to uh, cleanse or reform the outward trappings of Israel's worship and get rid of the statues 
and the high places maybe, um, you know, it's a lot easier to take idols out of the land than it is to take idolatry out of the people's hearts. And it seems that that's something that even the best kings never managed to do in a lasting way. But you see what even the best of, Israel's king, of Israel and Judah's kings could never seem to manage to do under the monarchy. That is precisely what God is going to do on that day. God is going to do what no one else has been able to do in all of Israel's history. He is going to cleanse the idolatry out of Israel's heart. He's going to create this new kind of milieu, this new kind of spiritual climate among his people where idolatry is just no longer okay with anybody. It's no longer normal. It's no longer acceptable. God's people are no longer content just to let it keep going on in their hearts and in their community. This is a community that has become serious about holiness because they have been cleansed by the supernatural fountain of God's purifying grace. When we think about how this comes to bear on us, I think it's fair to say that the ultimate fulfillment of this hope Zechariah is giving us here, this picture of a community where idolatry is completely out of style, has become, yeah, um, I think you can see that hope realized in the fullest sense in the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, it says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So that's what, this is what the, the glorified, perfected family of God is going to look like in eternity. But of course, that's not what we're living in right now. Right now, we're living in a sinful world under the curse, you know, Sin in our own hearts, sin all around us. So I think, it's, I think it's worthwhile for us to think, how can we live towards that reality of the new Jerusalem now as the family of God living out the Christian life in a world that's not perfect, where we're not, we're not there yet? But where, where are we and what can we be by God's grace? See, God hasn't yet, to use Jesus' terminology, God hasn't separated out the wheat from the weeds yet. We're growing up together in this mixed world until the final harvest. But in that mixed world, we are still called to be a holy people, right? We are called to picture, to uh, at least prefigure this, this, um, uh, that, that future holiness of God's people um, and to, to seek to live it out by God's grace as far as we're able as the family of God. And so as we per- pursue that holiness, as we live as people that God has cleansed, There's something we need to be aware of about how sin works. People have often observed this before about sin. That sin doesn't usually come to us blatantly saying, I want you to try to be as evil as you possibly can. Um, Don't you want to do this dastardly deed? Sin comes insinuating itself. You can see this in the way the serpent tempted Eve. It gradually deceives us so that what at one time was unthinkable for us, first it just becomes thinkable. It's the first step. And then after it becomes thinkable, it it becomes plausible. And then it becomes attractive. And then it becomes something that we want, that we go and we try to get. And then eventually something we can't live without. That's the kind of trajectory of how sin worms its way into our hearts and into communities of people as well. It's the way sin... um, develops in society as well, in, in, in countries, in cultures. Things that once seemed unthinkable become thinkable and then plausible 
and then attractive, and so on. I'm not the first person to say these things. Um, I think it's a really good observation. The good news, though, is that it works the opposite way as well. The grace of God moves in the opposite direction. God is able, by his mighty power, to reverse that that drift, cause things to work the other way. And what he's picturing here for Judah is a new normal, a new set of norms and expectations, a community life that's been adjusted to reality, adjusted to the law of God by the grace of God. And here you see that the false prophecy idolatry has become implausible. You're not quite unthinkable, but that's on its way there uh, for God's people. That's what we want to see. And so we want to make a practice then of examining ourselves as individuals, as families, as a church, to see if what we think of as normal, as okay, as plausible, as thinkable, does that match more the imagination of the world around us, of the culture that we're living in, or does it match more the kind of imagination that has been cleansed by the fountain of God's grace. Finally, we come to the last section of this chapter. And again, you hear the tone kind of change really abruptly. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, this idea of this shepherd being struck, um, it's, a, it's an abrupt change from what Zechariah was saying in the previous verse. It's not, however, completely out of left field in the flow of the book and even this set of chapters that we're in. Um, you could think back to Zechariah 11. Zechariah took on that symbolic job as a shepherd. And you remember what happened to Zechariah the shepherd, how his shepherding efforts were rejected. Well, combine that with chapter 12. That figure seems some kind of combination between the Lord himself and someone kind of adjacent to the Lord who was pierced by God's people. Well, now we have this shepherd who stands next to the Lord who's going to be struck by the sword. One of the things that's really important for us to see here is how active God is at this moment. In chapter 11, Zechariah was rejected by people who should have accepted his shepherding care. Chapter 12, this figure was pierced by the people. Here, it is God who is saying, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. It is God who is issuing this command, strike the shepherd. It's really important that we see that the striking of the shepherd is not catching God by surprise. It's not like God is wringing his hands here about Israel rejecting the good leadership he's, he's providing for them. God is fully in control, for, uh, in control here. He's the one who's calling for the sword. And so that means that the striking of the shepherd, as well as the piercing of the figure in chapter 12, as well as the rejection 
uh, pictured in Zechariah's shepherding job in chapter 11. All of that is not an obstacle to God's plan to bring about this promised future on that day. It is part of God's plan to bring about this promised future, which at first is hard to take in, right? How could the people of God rejecting all of these uh, movements of the Lord towards them be part of his plan to bring this future to pass? Well, it's it's related to that interplay we've talked about many times from uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, when he tells the people of Jerusalem, listen, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But it's also true that you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. That's not an either or, that's a both and. It was God's definite plan and foreknowledge. It was God's plan for Jesus to be crucified, for Jesus to die, for sinners to lay down his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down and had the authority to take it up again. But it was also Israel's covenant failure coming to its climax when they crucified the Savior that had been sent to them, the shepherd they struck. Now, when this shepherd is struck, what happens? The sheep are scattered. And what happens here, the two-thirds, one-third, verse 8, this is a narrowing down of the covenant community. Two-thirds are cut off and perish. One-third remains. I want to relate this in our minds to this consistent pattern that you see all through the Old Testament prophets, the idea of a faithful remnant. Prophets come back to this over and over and over, that God's plan for Israel is he's going to save a faithful remnant. The mainstream of Israel is going to fall away. The mainstream of Israel is going to experience covenant curse. It's a consistent message through the prophets. But God has also determined to spare a remnant, to save a remnant, new growth from the dead-looking stump, And through that remnant, he's determined to establish a revived community, covenant community. It's going to blossom into the future new creation. And that's what's happening here. Israel's being narrowed down to a faithful remnant that is going to blossom into the new covenant community. What else we want to notice here about that faithful remnant, though? They're spared the judgment of being cut off. But they're not spared all suffering, are they? These faithful few who remain, it says, are going to be refined. They're going to be tested. They're going to be purified. What you're seeing here is the striking of the shepherd is going to be echoed. It's going to be mirrored in the experience of God's people, the renewed people, the new covenant people. If if their Savior suffered, if their shepherd suffered, following him means expecting suffering in their lives as part of what that looks like, to follow that shepherd. But you can also see so clearly, though, that that painful experience for the remnant is very different from the painful experience that befalls the two-thirds who are cut off and perish. 
Because that refining and testing and the pain associated with them, those are not expressions of God's wrath. Those are not expressions of covenant judgment. They are God's tools, like the tools of an expert surgeon. They are tools of God's grace and transforming power, refining, testing, shaping, purifying, bringing us to glory. That's what God is doing. We're being taught here that if our Savior suffered, if our Savior suffered, we also are to expect suffering as part of the Christian life, part of growing. Christ-shaped character is formed through cross-shaped experiences. Our Savior suffered for us in a way we will never have to share in terms of enduring the wrath of God. And it's also true that our Savior is with us now in the midst of our suffering. And he's using that suffering to grow us, to shape us, to refine us, to be more like him. So when you suffer as a Christian, it's important to have these kinds of images in your mind that Zechariah gives to us. When you suffer as a Christian, you've got to remember it's, that's not evidence that God is mad at you, that God is angry with you or wrathful towards you. You've got to remember verse 1 is at the foundation of all of this. You have been cleansed if you're trusting in Christ. You have been cleansed by the fountain of God's mercy. You've been washed white as snow through the blood of the Lamb who was slain for you and who took the wrath of God once and for all. It is finished. You're never going to experience that wrath as a Christian. Never. Not once. Jesus paid it all. And because of that, we are able to say then with the remnant of verse 9 that the Lord is our God. And we're able to have confidence that when he looks at us in Christ, he looks and he says, those are my people. They're mine in Jesus. And so that can give us hope then that, that when, when we're going through that refining fire, it gives us this reassurance that in Christ, God is for you. God is with you. And none of that pain is wasted. Not an ounce of it. Rather, God is turning all of it to his good purposes for you in Christ. And if you ever struggle with that, if you're ever actually going through it and you feel those doubts arise, how could this possibly be good for me in the grand scheme of things? This simply does not feel like something good. You look back at the cross. You look back at the cross and you look back at your shepherd who was struck for you. He was struck so that he could open for you this fountain of verse 1. So that you could be cleansed through his suffering on your behalf. And when it gets confusing, when it gets overwhelming, when you're struggling to make sense of it all, remember that that is a shepherd who loves you. And that is a a savior that you can trust in the midst of it all. Okay, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the good news you've given to us here in Zechariah, the way that this passage has pointed us to the Lord Jesus, his suffering for us, the way he was struck, and his disciples scattered, and yet, Lord, in your grace, you reassembled them, you cleansed them, and you equipped them through the Holy Spirit to keep serving him, to be more like him. Thank you you've made us part of that story, part of that community, and part of that mission. And we ask that you would please strengthen us for all of these things. Give us patient endurance to suffer along with Christ so that one day we'll be glorified with him in the new heavens and the new earth.
on that day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.